Let's open the Scriptures to the letter of Paul to, or rather to the Gospel of Matthew, and then to the letter of Paul in Ephesians. Matthew chapter 11. And after that, some verses from Ephesians chapter 1. And we're, these readings are taken in connection with the doctrine of election as we confess that in Belgic Confession, Article 16. So from Matthew 11, we read at verse 20 through verse 30. Then he, that's the Lord Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy or with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I invite you to turn with me to Article 16 of the Belgic Confession. And there the church summarizes the teaching of God's Word about divine election. We believe that when the entire offspring of Adam plunged into perdition and ruin by the transgression of the first man, God manifested Himself to be as He is, merciful and just. Merciful in rescuing and saving from this perdition those whom in His eternal and unchangeable counsel He has elected in Jesus Christ our Lord by His pure goodness without any consideration of their works. Just in leaving the others in the fall and perdition, and that word perdition just means condemnation, into which they have plunged themselves. So far, the Belgic Confession. In response to the preaching, we'll sing once again from Psalm 28, the stanzas 4 and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we come then to this rather weighty doctrine of election. It is quite a concept, really. The Bible says that before the creation of the world, God, Father, Son, and Spirit crafted a plan a plan for every molecule that God would make, a purpose for everything that His hands would produce. And then Scripture tells us a plan in which God particularly decides to rescue, to save a, a number of sinners from their fall, from their perdition, from their condemnation. Scripture calls this God's plan of election. Election, we're familiar with that word, it means to choose. Sometimes in the Bible it's called the decree of predestination. Predestination is just a word for saying that God chose in advance those whom He would save, so He has a certain destination in mind for those people. And he decided their destination before the creation of the world. So it's predestination. And the people he didn't decide that for, he left unto themselves. 
So we're into these deep waters, election, predestination, eternal decree. Things here are difficult to articulate. They're even harder sometimes to understand. And yet for all of this doctrine's lofty heights, the Belgic Confession deals with it in one fairly brief article, Article 16. It's one of the, the deepest concepts, one of the largest controversies in the history of the church developed over this concept. And yet in 1561, Guido de Bray saw fit and the church with him to keep it simple. Because really that's what the Bible itself does when you look at it. Later on in history, when false teachers started to twist this doctrine, it became necessary to defend it, and that's why we ended up with the Synod of Dort. That's why we have something called the Canons of Dort in our Book of Praise as a confessional document. The Canons of Dort defend the doctrine of election. But everything in the Canons can really be boiled down to or find its root in this simple article 16 of the Belgic Confession. So we're going to try and keep things simple too this afternoon. The main point that comes across in Article 16 and in Scripture wherever election is taught, the main point is this, God is in the driver's seat. That's the main point. And I hope to clarify that for you as I bring you this word of the Lord, salvation from sin is all God's doing. Salvation from sin is all God's doing. We'll see what God owes to man and then what God gives to man. Well, one of the first things to note here is how the Belgic Confession approaches the doctrine of election. There are people who like to speak about election quite a bit and they build their understanding of salvation solely on the basis of the decree of election. So there are certain Christians who start with God's plan from before creation, and then they move outward from there to the implementation of that plan. So they come to view the creation of the world, the fall into sin and redemption. They view them through the, the lens of election. That colors, for some people, everything in Scripture, even God's covenant with Adam, Noah, or Abraham, they look at the covenant through the lens of election. For them, covenant becomes synonymous with election, and in the process that the two-sided nature of the covenant, you know, that's a relationship. We talked about that at a recent baptism where God makes promises and He wants His people to respond to them. He expects His people to respond to them. That two-sided Nature of the covenant is kind of put on the back burner. It almost disappears for some when they look at it through the lens of election. The Bible itself does not do that. The Bible doesn't teach election in that manner. When the Lord began to reveal Himself to His people and, and write down that revelation in Scripture, then the first thing He revealed was not the plan of election. The first thing he revealed was the creation of the world, the beginning of 
history. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not a record of that pre-creation consultation within the persons of the Trinity, but Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a record of God acting, God working, God creating, and then God resting. It's the record of history's beginning, of man's beginning, of the covenant's beginning. That's how Article 16 approaches things here. It starts in the, the history of the world as God reveals it in Genesis. You might recall we've, we've had occasion to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in, in recent articles here in the Belgic. Going back to Article 12, we dealt with the creation of all things, especially the angels. Then came in Article 13, God's care, God's providential care and governance over His creation. And then Article 14 and 15, we dealt extensively with the creation of man, man's rebellion and fall into sin, the spread of original sin to all the human race. So we've been dealing with, with all those historical matters in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and now that's how Article 16 comes, approaches this as well. We believe, here's the opening sentence, we believe that when the entire offspring of Adam plunged into perdition and ruin by the transgression of man that God manifested Himself to be. So I just want to point this out. First, we, we start with the facts of history according to the Bible, and then we talk about, or the confession talks about the plan of election. If we miss that arrangement, that approach, we're going to miss everything, for it's impossible for us to fathom God's plan of election, that it is totally of grace, unless we first understand and accept that man is, by virtue of that fall into sin, totally depraved. We have to understand the, the problem we created for ourselves. You remember that. We've, we've been talking about that the last couple of sermons, because when people come to the doctrine of election, sometimes they accuse God of being unfair. It's not fair, God. Why didn't God elect everyone? Why didn't God decide to save everyone? It's not fair. They look at God's choice to save some but not everyone as an unmerciful act to those who are not chosen, and that makes them think poorly of God, and they ask questions like, why wouldn't God save everybody? But behind that question, brothers and sisters, is a failure to understand the predicament that we humans created for ourselves. The questioner has the idea that human beings are victims. Like people left treading water after the sinking of the Titanic. They look at God as the only one having a lifeboat going around, if you imagine, then hundreds and maybe thousands of people floating in the Atlantic Ocean after the sinking of the Titanic and then arbitrarily picking one, leaving others and going on and picking another, even though there was enough room in the lifeboat to save everyone. And when you have that kind of picture of God in your mind, God comes off as mean-spirited. While the human race is regarded as the unfortunate victim of circumstance, it's almost, in, in these people's minds, it's almost as if God owed it to man to rescue him. He should have taken everybody on board the boat. That's 
why we have to start in Genesis with historical facts. Mankind is no victim. Mankind is rebel. Remember what God had done for man. The Lord had created man out of the dust. He breathed into him the breath of life. He formed him like he had formed no other creature. He formed him into his very own image. Unique, special. God made man good. God endowed him with gifts. He didn't make him neutral even, but he made him inclined toward God. He equipped him with a, a spirit that was inclined to love him, to serve God. And he put him right away into action, naming the animals. He made him king, ruler beneath him over all of creation. And God blessed man. Remember that too? God gave Adam a wife from his own side to complete human creation. God fellowship with man. He came to him in the garden. And indeed, God planted a beautiful garden, an arboretum for which, in which man could live and commune with him. God loved man. God showered all of his blessings upon man. Man was placed in this highest position over all creation as God's vicegerent, reflecting the Lord's image as he ruled and subdued the earth. Every tree in the garden was his for food except for one single tree. Man could live there happy and content, fulfilling life in service to the Lord. But man chose to throw it away. Rebellion. Article 16 reminds us of our actions. The entire offspring of Adam plunged. We didn't just trip and, and, and just happen to fall. Well, no, no, we threw ourselves. We plunged into perdition, the state of being lost and ruin by the transgression of the first man. So, to go back to the Titanic, we didn't hit an iceberg by accident. We didn't even hit an iceberg by some measure of neglect. No. We purposefully planted a bomb on the very ship God had put us on to sail for His honor. We blew up the ship. And even that analogy doesn't capture our situation for even as fallen sinners now depraved and corrupt, we continue to turn away from God willingly, voluntarily, deliberately. So before you can understand what, what God has done in electing some to be saved, you need to first remember the magnitude of what we did as a human race, the human race, in plunging ourselves into hateful, rebelling against our loving God. Are we innocent victims? No. We're neither innocent nor victim. We are traitors like Judas and insurrectionists like Barabbas. And so we deserve the fate of our eternal damnation. No one can ever say truthfully that God was unfair in choosing to save some and not others because the plain truth is that God owed salvation to no one. What did God owe man? Nothing. 
in our mind, our depraved, sinful mind, we still like to blame God. Oh, we'd like to blame God, just like Adam and Eve did, right? When God came into the Garden of Eden, asking questions, first response from Adam, the woman, you gave me, Lord. She made me do this. And we have that same instinct. We want to put it on God's shoulder somehow. But Scripture makes us see. It puts our nose up against the glass. Who's to blame? Only me. Only us. We've only got ourselves to blame. And to understand that in His righteousness, God would have been totally justified to leave the entire human race in that state of perdition or condemnation. God owed us nothing but punishment, retribution, the outpouring of justice. It would have been completely in line with the Lord's holiness to not elect anyone to salvation. So the question should not be and is not, why didn't God save everyone? That's not the question. The question is, why did God choose to save even a single person? That's the question. Why did God choose to save even a, 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 a single, miserable, wretched individual who by nature hates God? And the only answer to that question is, Mercy, God's own mercy. That comes out in Ephesians 1. I wonder if you'd turn there with me for a moment. Ephesians 1. Page 1241. If you're ever struggling with the doctrine of election... Or maybe want to show another person from Scripture where this doctrine can be found. This is one of the clearest passages about election in Scripture. Verse 3, it starts, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here it comes. Even as He chose us, in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It doesn't come much clearer than that. God chose us in Christ Jesus. We didn't choose God. God chose us. Well, what does that mean, that He chose us in Christ Jesus? Well, you have to remember, like we saw last time, God always deals covenantally with family units. By nature, we saw last time, we are all in Adam. Adam is our representative by nature as a part of the human race. And with Adam, we plunged ourselves into eternal death by that original sin. So every human is in Adam, and every human is doomed in Adam, but now comes God's revelation of His election. He chose some humans to be in 
Christ Jesus. So he's changing our status. He chose some to be included in the last Adam. In the first Adam, we are all unholy. We're all blamable in the sight of God, but God chooses to set a portion of the human race inside the last Adam to be represented by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And now they are regarded, we are regarded as holy and blameless in His sight. There's this great transfer, being in Adam to now being in Christ. And why did God do this? What was the motivation? Why did God choose any? Was it that some were actually trying to find God and really wanted to worship God? So there isn't a single person in the history of the world outside of Jesus who by nature is inclined to love God, who by nature wants to turn their heart to God. We're all sheep that willingly cho choose to wander off away from the Lord. Okay, we might think, well, maybe some humans were, God saw that some humans were wiser than other humans. Some humans were just superior in some way to others. Was it perhaps that some philosophers or spiritual people, like you got your Plato's and your Aristotle's and people like that, that so impressed God that He decided He would save them because they're searching? The Lord Jesus Himself makes it clear that this is not the case. As we read from Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, He's praying to God, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. He's talking about the wise and understanding of the world and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. The wise of this world, the so-called knowledgeable of this world, the, the best that hu the human race has to offer is not trying to ascend to God. They are blind in themselves. The truth is, brothers and sisters, there's nothing in human beings that impresses God. There's nothing inside of any human which calls out to God for His attention that draws the Lord's eye, so to say, that God would look upon any individual and say, now there's somebody worth saving. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save him. Scripture is unequivocal. There is no one in themselves worth saving. But now the happy truth alongside of that is God nevertheless chooses to save some. And Paul tells us why right here in verse 4. In love. Last two words of verse 4, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In love. That's the secret to the plan of election. In love. Whose love? His love. God's love. Out of God's boundless love, He decided to look upon the human race and choose out of all those rebels, some for Himself. He would convert those rebels. He would change those rebels. He would give those hard-hearted rebels hearts of flesh that would love Him. 
It's all in accordance with the purpose of His will, despite the reckless rebellion that existed in the whole human race. The choice to select even one human, the choice to choose even, as we learn from Scripture, a good many human beings arises out of God's pleasure, God's will, God's love, His undeserved love for us, enemies by nature, undeserved love in Jesus Christ. The Bible sums that up elsewhere with, with one word, a word that, that is full of great profundity. It's the word mercy. We use it a lot, maybe, but it's a word that is like a bottomless well of, of grace, of compassion when, it, when we're talking about God. God's love for us in Christ. Nowhere is God's mercy on display so fully as in the death of Jesus Christ. Our Belgic Confession will come back to that in Article 20, but already here we see the great mercy of God for us in giving His Son as substitute for our sins. We're going to be gathered here this Good Friday to mark that very thing. And now think about this. Who can charge God with being merciless when they look at Jesus? Who can charge God with being heartless toward humans when they look at the cross and all that His Son suffered? Who can charge God with being unfair when they see God's very Son being sent from heaven to take the form of a servant, to take upon Himself punishment, the punishment of man's sin, so that the elect of God could be set free from perdition, to get out of jail, to get out of hell, and go into the family of God. Who can charge God with being unfair? We deserve nothing. Let's remember that starting point. Actually, it's worse. We deserve damnation, but God says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I give you mercy. I choose to bestow my love upon you by joining you to my son Jesus and you will receive in him eternal life. I give you mercy. This is what our confession brings out so succinctly in Article 16. God manifested himself to be as he is merciful and just, merciful in rescuing and saving from this perdition those whom in His eternal and unchangeable counsel He has elected in Jesus Christ our Lord by His pure goodness without any consideration of their works. You know, it's that last line that really got the goat of Dr. Jacob Arminius. Talked about him a little bit a time or two ago. Arminius and since him, Arminians who follow his teaching, they really object to that line. And it's actually that objection that led to the Synod of Dort and the Canons of Dort. 
You see, Arminians, they can't handle the idea that God would choose people without any concern for what those people thought or what those people did or, or the disposition of their hearts. They think, Arminians think, that man has to play some kind of role in all this, that man has at least a deciding role to play for God's offer of salvation. So God makes the offer, and man has to distinguish himself by accepting the offer. And the Arminians, then and today, they fight this idea tooth and nail. They insist that God made a gracious offer, but man has to accept it. Man with his, you recall, free will, as they believe. God sent Jesus to clear away the burden of Adam's original sin. God sent Jesus, they say, to bring the entire world into a radically new covenant situation where the whole human race now is, is almost brought back to the Garden of Eden. We're given this new circumstance where we're all free to choose for God or against God. We, we start with a blank slate, they say. And we have to exercise our free will. So the Arminian conception goes like this. God opens the door. Man has to decide to walk through it. God builds a bridge, but man has to walk over it. God presents forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ, but man of his own free will has to take it by faith. In short, the Arminians, they put the final decision for salvation in man's lap, which means that in their idea, man is in the driver's seat. God can't bring them in unless man decides to come in. But when you when you know from Scripture all that we've been seeing in Articles 14 and 15, when you know that the whole human race is dead in sin, both unable and unwilling to obey God or please God by nature, then you see that the Arminians have got it totally wrong. Spiritually dead people cannot come alive. They can't bring about their own spiritual birth. They're dead. A heart that is inclined to hate God and neighbor can never suddenly become inclined to love God and neighbor, can never choose to love Christ unless that heart is changed and converted and regenerated by an outside force. And that outside force, says the Scriptures, is God's electing love in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1. In the Bible, it is never, ever, ever man in the driver's seat. God only able to do so much, man has to complete the equation. Never. From Genesis to Revelation, it is always and it forever will be that the holy, supreme, sovereign God, He alone is in the driver's seat. Could you even conceive that it would be otherwise? That the Creator of the world would not be in control and will not have sufficient power to bring the people of His choosing into salvation. Again, Paul teaches us so clearly in Ephesians 1. Let's go to verse 11 now. In Him, so that's in Christ, 
Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, we talked about that word already, it's another word for being chosen before creation, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. God in control, right? God does the choosing. God predestines. God has a plan. That's what's meant here by that word counsel, another word for plan. God is working out everything, so that's everything in the unfolding of history. He's working it all out according to the counsel of His will, the plan. And why does God have a plan that He's determined to work out in such exactitude? Answer from the text, so that we might exist for the praise of His glory. That's why He's unfolding this master plan. We exist to glorify the Creator, the Savior. We are on earth to praise Him. We live with Him forever. We will live with Him forever on the new earth to display His honor to all of creation, to sing His praises, to show to all creatures in heaven and on earth that our God is most awesome, most holy, most just, and most merciful, loving, and marvelous in every way. The existence of saved humans in Christ magnifies the name of the Maker. And you know, that perspective can help us in so many ways. It can help us endure, for example, the painful trials of this life. Because when we know that God has a plan, like we know from Ephesians 1, then we know that the painful trials are equally part of the plan. There's nothing outside of the plan. And God's plan does not have you or me at the center. Who's in the center? God is in the center of this plan. Of course, He certainly loves us, and He, he means to do us good, and He's intending to save us. He's announced that. But as we struggle in this fallen world with, with its countless hurts and sorrows, as we suffer loss and separation and sadness, as we are put sometimes through the ringer of emotion and strain trying to cope with difficulty and wondering why all these things have to come about, let's also remember this plan, the master plan. And the plan is that everything works to the glory of His name, everything To go back to Genesis, the fact that there's sin in this world, the fact that there's the consequences of sin, right? All this negative stuff, all. That's our fault, right? Let's, let's remember that. And if God had chosen to leave us alone, which was His right to do, then the only thing that sin entering into this world would have accomplished is to destroy the human race. That was the only possible outcome if God had left us to ourselves. But now, in grace, God has not left us to ourselves. God tells us about this plan, a plan from before creation 
in which he decided to use even our sin to serve a greater purpose. Even evil plays a part in this master plan. God hasn't left us alone, but having chosen us to live and die for His glory, He's also ordained all the brokenness and suffering, pain, and hardship to serve the purpose of pointing all the arrows of honor. They all point back to Him. If He allows pain to come to one of His children, then this same God allows strength to endure the pain, and He gets the praise for that? If He takes a child of His from this life, then that child joins the host in heaven above to sing His praise. And meanwhile on earth, the, the, the mourning loved ones, they take comfort in His promises that there is a resurrection from the dead, and they praise Him even while they mourn. If the father allows his children to lose a companion and feel loneliness, then he comes and provides divine companionship. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a husband to the widow. He's a friend to the friendless. And we are given more reasons to praise him. If God fills our eyes with tears, he'll be there to dry them too. If he allows fear to grip a heart and anxiety to come there for a time, he will also send his peace like a river so that his child may, may know with greater clarity and certainty that he is always with him, always with her, that he loves them. Hardship not only serves to transform us, into better disciples of our Lord, but it, even more it serves to bring our Lord the credit and the honor and the worship and the love He so richly deserves. God is in the driver's seat. Paul adds here in Ephesians 1, verse 13, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God sealed you, just like you seal an envelope. And sometimes you put a little stamp on the envelope where the seal hits. God seals you with His Spirit. You're in Christ. You're sealed in Christ. We receive, we're recipients of God's electing grace. The Lord Jesus speaks the same way in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things, he says, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see that? Nobody can know the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. It's not the other way around, not people choosing for God. It's the Son choosing to reveal the Father to people. Not everybody is saved. Only the elect, only the chosen 
those chosen by grace to life. The rest of the human race stay. Where do they stay? They stay right where they want to stay. They stay where all humans start out and belong by rights. Article 16 confesses that too. God is just in leaving the others in the fall and perdition into which they have plunged themselves. Nobody's a victim. Nobody's left behind crying out to God for salvation. The human race is a rebel race. We turned our backs on God. But God in His mercy turns some of us back to Him to see His face in peace. He's done that through Jesus Christ, His Son. So, brothers and sisters, if you have faith in your heart in Jesus Christ as the one who died for your sin, if you have a love for God shining forth from your heart in your life, then you should know that you are among those whom the Son has revealed the Father. This is how you can know, this is how you and I can verify that we are among the true children of God, that we are among the elect. Here's some other evidence. If you have a sorrow for sin in your life and you, you know that you've offended God and you cry out to God for, for forgiveness in your sorrow, and you also have a love and delight to obey God's commandments, then that's proof that you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God because nobody can do those things unless the Spirit of God is in them. And if you've been regenerated by the Spirit of Christ, then you have been sealed with the Spirit of Christ because you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And then you can know for yourself and you can say for yourself, because of the mercy of my God, His mercy alone, I now am in Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. I am a covenant child and I am an elect child of God by grace, chosen to life everlasting. Hallelujah. Amen.